3: First degree. first degree first
1: degree first degree first degree first degree the first degree you see it on the news you see it on the paper you see it on facebook these things are supposed to happen in movies not in real life he was went-
4: a really distinct-looking person. He's very skinny, and he has these, like, amazingly piercing blue eyes. But, like, scary in a way. Like, they almost look like they're looking through you. You hear about these people, and they've done, like, horrific things, and you're just like, these people had family, people knew them. It's crazy to think about, like, the duplicity. Sometimes you really just don't know what people are capable of and how they can just turn it off and turn it back
3: on. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vianek. I'm here with Alexis Linkletter. How are we feeling today? We're feeling good today. We are feeling good today. We had a little catch up before this. I feel like I haven't seen you in forever, though we record all of the time. All the time. But sometimes, you know, when you got the goss, it just takes hold and you can't stop. Ah, if you guys only knew the goss that we were talking about behind the scenes. That's right. Uh, before we get into the episode, I just wanted to remind everybody to join our Patreon. I've been very good at remembering to say this during our episodes. We have bonus content over there. There's some true crime. There's some true crime adjacent. There's some straight up fun stuff going on. And if you just can't get enough of the first degree, it's all over there. That's right. Four more episodes a month. And we have
2: video coming soon. All on our Patreon. Uh, So
3: get involved. Join us over there. That's That's three episodes a week you would be getting, which is crazy. Crazy. Okay. So you want to know what day it is today? Please tell me. Today is November 16th and it is have a party with your bear day. I don't know how that one came up, but interesting. have a little powwow with your teddy bear. It's also National Button Day and National Fast Food Day. This okay. is the day that I like. I can get behind that. And it has a picture of Ronald McDonald. So you know what that means, people. Go out there, get your McDonald's, get a fry, get your McDonald's, get one of those fountain cokes. Mm, so good. All of it. Go to one where the ice cream machine is working. Yes. <laughs> the conspiracy about the McDonald's ice cream machines. Um, okay. Well, that is enough of that. So let's turn down the lights and turn up your anxiety because this could be you.
2: So whether you're religious or not, most people are familiar with the concept of Christianity's seven deadly sins. They're the acts said to derail us from reaching our highest spiritual potential. In terms of pursuing the excesses of life, gluttony, greed, and lust are all about indulging our hedonistic appetites on an individual level. And all the procrastinators out there will be super familiar with the temptation of sloth. But then you've also got wrath, pride, and envy which tend to be more about our responses to others. Looking at the notion of envy in particular, this is something people often confuse or think is synonymous with jealousy. So how are they different? Well, jealousy is about feeling threatened and resentful towards someone, about losing something in your own life, be it tangible or not, like a job promotion or a romantic partner. But envy is a little different. It's that feeling we have when we desire things that other people have whether that be a trait like beauty or leadership or circumstances like being born into wealth. And envy can itself morph into jealousy if we're not careful. But no matter how you slice it, while some feelings of envy are a normal part of the human condition, we have to be careful not to let it overcome us because the consequences can not only destroy lives, but even end
3: them. So we begin today's case on July 8th of 1997. So Tiger Woods clawed his way back into the world number one golf ranking. It was also the 108th anniversary of the very first issue of the Wall Street Journal. And a cool new way of communicating known as texting was fast becoming the next big thing, but it only worked if the sender and the receiver were on the same cell network. That's crazy. I didn't even know that. And at the same time, another new technology called the Internet was also gaining popularity, but users could only connect via dial-up. On the pop music charts, the number one song was I'll Be Missing You by Puff Daddy and Faith Evans featuring 112, followed by Hanson's Bop" Steady at number two. And at the box office, Men in Black starring Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones had bumped Nicolas Cage and John Travolta's action thriller Face Off down to the number two spot.
2: In the setting for today's story is the River Parishes region in Louisiana. Situated in the southeast of the state, this three-parish triangle traditionally consists of St. Charles Parish, St. James Parish, and St. John the Baptist Parish, with nearby Ascension Parish also considered part of the broader region. The area of around 112,000 people is located between Baton Rouge and New
3: Orleans. Our first degree for today's story is named Holly. And Holly was born and raised in Louisiana, but after college, she moved away to New Jersey for a decade or so before returning to her home state and settling in New Orleans. Holly eventually left her Colorado, but way before all that, she grew up in a low-income, working-class neighborhood in a small city of Gonzales.
4: Louisiana doesn't have counties, we have parishes. Essentially, I grew up in a in Parish. I guess you'd call it a suburb of Baton Rouge because it's about 20 to 30 minutes from Baton Rouge. The public school system is pretty good compared to the state of Louisiana, and it's about an hour from New Orleans, so it's
3: pretty much right in between, and I grew up very poor. So I grew up in like a not-great area. When Holly was in the fifth grade, she had a friend named Meredith. The girls had little supervision when they played and hung out together during the summers. They were proper latchkey kids, and such was common at the time.
4: So my parents pretty much let me do whatever, like, I wanted to do. I'd be like, just drop me off at a friend's house, and they would. They were just like, you know, whatever. So my friend, her mom and her dad were really pretty lenient, too. And she lived in a trailer park near another part of town, so I would go hang out with her sometimes in the summer when school was out. In the summer of 97,
2: Holly met a friend of Meredith's who we're going to call Stephanie. Stephanie's parents had split up, and her upbringing had been pretty chaotic. She lived with her mother in Texas, but came to Louisiana during the summers to visit her father. Pretty soon, Holly, Meredith, and Stephanie were hanging out together all the time, and they would often do so at Stephanie's dad's house, which is where she was staying. Sometimes her dad was around and sometimes he wasn't.
4: Most of the time our quote unquote playing was like riding our bikes around town because none of us had nice houses, none of us wanted to be at our houses. Most of most all of us weren't really wanting to hang out at our house and we just wanted to be other places. So we were always usually outside riding our bikes, riding around.
3: Stephanie's dad lived in a trailer park and Holly remembers him working a lot on an old truck and always being dirty, which made sense because he was a mechanic by trade. Stephanie and her dad seemed to have an okay relationship, you know, as much as you can when one parent lives in another state. But either way, he was memorable.
4: Sometimes we would be there and he wasn't there. There was a lot of speaking or interacting. Like, it was, like, indifferent. That's how I took it. I didn't see that he was very fatherly. Because he wasn't really, like, a very smart person, from what I remember. I don't think she was unhappy. But at the time, I was like, we didn't really have those kinds of deep conversations. We just kind of hung out in the neighborhood. And we were at that age where we're, like, 10, 11, you know, preteen, where we're, like, we're liking boys suddenly. And we're going through puberty and all that. I remember her being very sweet, but I remember her I feeling like she was way more mature than us, feeling like intimidated by her almost, but not to say that she wasn't happy, but she just was a much more serious kid. And I think that probably is because she had to grow up fast because she had a lot going on in her life. Like we said, Stephanie's dad wasn't
2: always around, but when he was, he would still do the mundane dad tasks required of
4: all parents. One time, he made us macaroni and cheese, and we all ate macaroni and cheese outside of their house, like sitting on their front porch. Meanwhile, behind
2: the scenes of the seemingly wholesome backdrop of gal pals in the summer eating mac and cheese, a string of violent murders and robberies had been occurring across the River Parish's region. One murder after the next, and they all
3: remained unsolved. Right, since December of the previous year, six people between the ages of 41 and 76 had been robbed and brutally slain in their homes. And to make things more complicated, no one knew whether these murders were the work of one serial killer or if they were even connected at all. The Gonzales Police Department
4: were investigating the murders as well as neighboring towns. There's a town called Laplace, Louisiana, which is which is very close to New Orleans. And then there's another parish called St. James Parish. So the murders actually happened within these couple of parishes. At the time, Holly had little awareness
2: of what was going on. I mean, many of the victims were older, middle-aged people, which didn't quite capture the public's attention the way other victimology can and often does. Holly was living in a pre-teen headspace, so it wasn't really on her radar the same way it would be today.
3: As word of the murder spread, middle-aged people from Louisiana were becoming increasingly terrified. The public had no idea what to expect or how to anticipate who would be killed next. It seems so fucking scary. Scary. And weeks passed and the summer finished and Stephanie returned to Texas and Holly and Meredith started the sixth grade. Then, one night a few months later, Holly was at home with her mom watching the news. And as she watched, she caught a story where an image flashed up on the
2: TV screen. It was an official announcement that an arrest had been made in one of the murders that summer, and more charges expected to be filed soon. As Holly watched the segment, a
4: face flashed up on the screen. I'm sitting in my mom's room watching TV, and... The news came on. I remember going, "Oh my god, mom!" And my Mom's was like, "What?" And I was like, "That's her. That's I've been to his house. I've met this man. I have talked to this man, and I'm like freaking out. I ate macaroni and cheese at this man's house." The man
2: who had been arrested was her new friend Stephanie's father, 35-year-old Daniel
4: Blank. He was a really distinct looking person. He's very skinny and he has these like amazingly piercing blue eyes. But like scary in a way. Like they almost look like they're looking through you. But like he's kind of one of those people that you don't see and dismiss. Like you see him and you remember him. So I always thought he was super scary. We were all poor though, so we all kind of, you know, grew up around people that looked like that. So very blue collar area. He fit that mold big time.
3: Holly was stunned. Could this actually be for real? Was her friend's dad really a serial killer? To answer all these questions, you know the drill. We got to go back.
2: The man arrested in November of 1997 for murder, Daniel Joseph Blank, was born on June 28, 1962, in the Louisiana town of Letcher in St. James Parish. He was one of eight children. His parents worked at a sugar refinery. Daniel was really close to his mom, and they had a loving relationship. But despite this, money was tight for a family of 10. And like many others, the Blanks often had to go without. When Daniel was 12, he was hit by a car while riding a bike and suffered a mild brain injury. And without the money to access medical care, there was little help available to him. He dropped out of school in the 8th grade and was eventually assessed as having an IQ
3: of 85. When Daniel was 14 years old, he was sent to reform school for burning down an old, abandoned building. After leaving school and in the absence of finishing his formal education, Daniel got straight into working with cars, training to be a mechanic. At age 17, he was arrested for battery, but the charge was dismissed. As a young adult, the only offenses on his record were criminal mischief and traffic violations. At some point in the
2: 80s, Daniel got married and had two children, but he and his wife eventually divorced. In late 1994, his world was turned upside down when his mother passed away
3: at the young age of 51, and this devastated him. By 1996, Daniel had moved to the town of Sorrento, Louisiana, and was working on and off for local repair shops as a mechanic. He lived with his girlfriend, Cynthia, and her two kids from a previous relationship, while his biological kids were living with their mom. And Daniel didn't really have many hobbies, but he really enjoyed gambling. Like, really enjoyed gambling. And he didn't have a lot of money, and now he was basically paying for four kids, and Daniel really saw gambling as a way to supplement his income. And he seemed to do pretty well at the Casinos too, despite his pastime being high financial risk but minimal effort. He often told his siblings about the amounts that he'd won, and he even visited them once, riding a brand new motorcycle.
2: Yeah, but the house always wins, you know. You gotta be prepared to lose whatever you're gambling. Either way, in the fall of 1996— Daniel heard some shocking news through the grapevine. His former boss, a 41 year old man named Victor John Rossi was found dead on his couch at his home in Ascension parish by his daughter. The father of three had been beaten to death with his own baseball bat, which the killer had thrown in the bathtub. So Victor owned his own repair shop. He wasn't wealthy by any means, but definitely financially comfortable. His sister who lived on the same street told officers that on the night of their murder, she heard a scream coming from Victor's house. But police were at a total loss as to why he was targeted or why he was so viciously attacked. It seemed like one of those random things. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program. And it's available on desktop or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways. And with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally. First with words, then phrases, and then sentences. And before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. Almost six months after 41-year-old Victor Rossi was murdered, another murder would occur. On March 19th of 97, 58-year-old widow Barbara Bourgeois was stabbed and bludgeoned to death at her home in Paulina, St. James Parish. Barbara was a mother of three and a teacher's aide for children with special needs. Her husband of 60 years had passed away only the year before. Barbara's neighbors called the police the day after the murder after becoming concerned when there were no lights on in her house and the newspaper remained on her front lawn and was never brought in.
3: When police forced their way into Barbara's home, they found her laying on her back on the living room floor with multiple stab wounds and blunt force trauma. A blood-spattered vacuum cleaner, which was the murder weapon, lay near Barbara's body and a bloody knife was in the kitchen sink. Defensive injuries showed that Barbara fought back against her attacker. Whoever had killed her had cut the phone line and entered the property through the utility room via an unlocked back window. And they also rifled through her purse, but it didn't appear that any money was stolen.
2: Three weeks later, 71-year-old widow Lillian Felipe was looking forward to attending a religious retreat in Mississippi with her sister-in-law. But on the morning of April 10th, when the retreat was slated to begin, Lillian failed to show, and no one could reach her by phone. Growing more and more concerned, Lillian's sister in law sent a family member over to check on her. And when they arrived at Lillian's house, her car was in the driveway, and her front
3: door was unlocked, and her security system was deactivated. And Lillian's house was eerily quiet, so the police were called. When authorities arrived, they found Lillian on the floor at the foot of her bed, covered in blood. She'd been stabbed, then bludgeoned to death with a trophy which lay near her head along with a bloody knife. Outside, it appeared that the intruder had placed a chair on top of the front porch AC unit, climbed onto the roof, where they removed the attic vent and gained access to the house that way. Lillian's phone line was cut and her house had been ransacked.
2: Lillian's murder was the second of its kind that had occurred in Ascension Parish in six months. So naturally, law enforcement began to wonder if there was a connection. But before they could make much headway, the body count rose yet again a month later, this time in St. John the Baptist Parish. 76-year-old Joseph Sam Arcuri and his 69-year-old wife, Luella Ann were church-going couple who lived in the small city of Laplace. On the night of May 9th, while the couple was asleep, an intruder entered through their garage. They awoke and got out of bed, only for Sam to be attacked and killed in the hallway. Luella struggled with her husband's killer until she too
3: was left for dead on the kitchen floor. The next morning, the couple's son who was a sheriff's deputy with the parish called around after his parents didn't answer the phone. He went to their house where he found them covered in blood as was much of the hallway and kitchen. Sam had defensive wounds to his forearms and his pockets had been turned inside out. Like the intruder had been looking for a wallet. Sam and Luella who was barely clinging to life had been bludgeoned with a baseball bat. A cane cutting knife was also found at the scene. There was no sign of forced entry at the home, but as with the other murder scenes, the residents had been ransacked and the phone line had been cut. Tragically, Luella died in the hospital later that day.
2: Sheriff's offices in Ascension, St. John the Baptist, and St. James Parishes joined forces with the Gonzales PD and FBI agents from New Orleans, forming a task force to investigate any possible link between the murders. But a mere five days later, they got a call about yet another slaying, again in Laplace. 55-year-old mother of four, Joan Marie Brock, was home alone while her husband was at work. And at some point during the morning, an intruder entered the home through the unlocked back door. So while dragging a safe from the couple's bedroom into the backyard, the intruder
3: was surprised by Joan. I guess he didn't realize that she had been home. So he grabbed a 20-inch knife from the kitchen and stabbed Joan four times, almost decapitating her. It appeared that he then tried to drag her body inside, but ended up giving up. And before leaving, the killer cut the phone line to the house. He loaded the safe containing jewelry and $36,000 in cash into Joan's Nissan and drove off. Law enforcement knew that they now had a serial killer on their hands, and the river parishes were gripped with fear. Nobody knew when this would stop, and nobody knew who would be next. And then things were quiet for
2: about eight weeks. And in this time, detectives are wondering if the killer or killers had gone to ground, were indisposed, or simply just waiting for the right time to strike again. Either way, you looked at it, everyone was still on edge. Then on July 7th in Gonzales, where Holly lived, there was yet another attack.
3: Leons and Joyce Miet, both 66 years old, were asleep when between 3 and 4 a.m. they were abruptly woken. Leons was struck across the face by a man holding a five-foot-long sling blade. The intruder then hit him in the face with a 33-pound garden rock breaking his nose, and the man demanded that he open the safe in the bedroom closet, but he couldn't see to the blood that was pouring out of his face from being hit by this rock. The man then put him in the bathroom and told Joyce to open the safe, threatening to kill her if she didn't. After taking $70,000 from the safe, the man found the couple's shotgun inside their utility room.
2: Meanwhile, Lyons had escaped from the bathroom and grabbed his pistol. He screamed for Joyce to run into the living room while he ducked behind a sofa. But when Leon saw the intruder's silhouette, he fired, but the pistol wasn't loaded. So then the intruder approached him and shined a flashlight into his face before shooting him. The man then found Joyce in the living room and shot her in the face. He then jumped in the couple's
3: Cadillac and took off. But unbeknownst to their attacker, the Miets were thankfully still alive. And miraculously, despite the horrific injuries that they both suffered, they both recovered and were able to give the detectives a description of the man who tried to kill them. He was white, somewhere between 20 and 30 years old, about 5'7", had blonde hair, and a medium build. When a composite sketch was developed and broadcast by the media, tips started to trickle in. So law enforcement, in looking at these crimes, theorized
2: that in 90% of them, they were dealing with a killer who was motivated by robbery. This killer was choosing homes where people were less likely to put up a fight, and he'd ransacked the properties looking for cash and valuables. And the fact that he hadn't brought a weapon with him, but instead killed his victims with items from inside their own homes, spoke to a lack of
3: intent to murder, at least until he got inside anyway. But even though the killer's M.O. was consistent on the face of things, the cases were initially kind of hard to connect. None of the victims knew each other, and despite Barbara Bourgeois' murder being just as gruesome as the other, no money was taken from her home. And aside from that, murder wasn't something that happened often in the river parishes, let alone to older people when they were asleep in their beds. There weren't a lot of
4: murders like this. And it almost seemed kind of random. It was like this couple here, you know, in this parish. And it was very strange. Like the woman that he like killed this one woman at her house. And she was a recent widow. Ultimately, though,
2: law enforcement couldn't ignore the overwhelming similarities between each slaying. Phone lines were cut, and all the victims were either stabbed or bludgeoned or both, except for the Miettes, who were shot with their own gun. And it's worth acknowledging how well the different jurisdictions worked together on this case, forming a joint task force early on.
4: He killed them all in different parishes, and the police connected them through age of the victims, the way that they were killed, the way that they were robbed. The police did really good work putting all this together because it wasn't super obvious that all these happened at the same time.
3: Police were pouring resources into this case, but they still were getting nowhere. Two months passed, and they still didn't have a suspect. And investigators again appealed to the public for help. By now, FBI behavioral analysts had developed a profile which was released at a press conference. The killer would have a large unexplained amount of cash, was either from or knew the River Parish's area extremely well, and may have left town straight after the murders. Detectives announced that they thought the killer had help from somebody else, possibly a girlfriend, who didn't commit the murders but perhaps provided transportation. So following the press conference, there was an outpouring of tips, including one very interesting one,
2: which came from a security guard at a casino in Sorrento, who recognized Daniel Blank from the composite sketch. So he knew Daniel as a regular who always brought thousands of dollars with him every time he attended the casino, but had no idea how a guy who's a mechanic would be coming up with so much cash all the time. And it just so happened that Daniel drove a distinctive pickup truck. When the security guard provided the description, one local officer recognized it as Daniel's because the officer had also been friends with the first victim, Victor Rossi, who had been Daniel's former boss. So ding, ding, ding. We're seeing how this case is coming together for them at this point.
4: They ended up finding him because of a tip. Someone called and said, you know, I know this guy and he has no money and he's been coming in here gambling. with all this money. He's been making these insanely expensive purchases and I don't think that he can really afford it. Anyway, he called that into the police. And... And then they figured out he worked for one of the victims. He lived near one of them. He gone to the casino and he spent all this money. And then they checked his bank account. And it was like he had $1,000 or something in his bank account. But he was buying like a brand new car with cash and stuff.
3: Officers visited Daniel's last known address in Louisiana, which was his girlfriend's mom's house. She told investigators that Daniel and the family had moved and offered to pass on a message to him. In July, after the attack on the Miats, coincidentally, Daniel, Cynthia, and the kids had relocated to Onalaska, Texas, telling their new neighbors that they moved interstate to escape increasing crime, which is ironic. Ironic. Daniel got a new mechanic job and actually offered his new boss $65,000 cash to buy the business, but the deal didn't pan out. Right. And by November, Daniel had learned that the cops were looking for him. So he decided to
2: get ahead of this thing, and he called the police and asked them what they wanted. They explained that his name had been mentioned regarding his spending at the casino and asked him to contact them when he was back in Louisiana, which he was planning to be on November 10th. So Daniel agreed, sure, I'll meet with you when I'm in town. But when that date came and went with no contact, the task force was
3: forced to do more digging on Daniel on their own. So they subpoenaed Daniel's income and casino records to verify Daniel's claims that the money he gambled was from his own income. And despite his wage, Daniel had spent $269,000 at three casinos, but cashed out at $220,000, giving him a net loss at around $49,000. At one casino, Daniel's gambling history suggested that he had earnings in excess of $200,000 a year. DMV records also showed that in 1997 alone, Daniel and Cynthia had purchased a pickup truck, a station wagon for $7,000, a motorcycle, a utility trailer, and they were all paid in cash. Right. In
2: addition, Daniel had just paid $220,000 cash to buy the mobile home in Texas where his family was now living. However, that's not really aligning with what his income is on paper because the Louisiana Department of Labor records showed that Daniel didn't report any earnings during 1997 and only made about $13,000 in 1996. There was no way he was earning enough to buy big ticket items for cash or spend the amounts he was at these casinos. So where was Daniel getting all this money?
3: The task force learned that since the first murder, Daniel had moved three different times around the River Parishes area, living in three of the four locations where the murders occurred. In fact, at the time of Barbara Bourgeois' murder, Daniel only lived a quarter of a mile away. So then more connections ended up emerging. In addition to working for Victor Rossi, Daniel also worked for Joan Brock's husband and bought car parts from a business run by Lillian Felipe's late husband. And at the time of the Acuris' murders, Daniel's girlfriend had worked at a restaurant across the road from their house. All the dots, albeit circumstantial, were connecting and pointing
2: straight to Daniel. So with no time to waste, detectives drove to Texas to talk to him and search his home. If they could get a confession, that would really be the break that they were hoping for and needed. On November 13th, Daniel agreed to a police interview. They read him his Miranda rights and made
3: it clear he wasn't under arrest. Investigators started asking Daniel about how he'd come into all of this money and soon turned their questioning to the unsolved robberies and murders. He denied having any knowledge about the attacks, and after three hours, he agreed to sit down for a polygraph test. The test was concluded three times and each one returned a result as deceptive. But still, Daniel was not budging. That was until detectives changed the direction of the interview. They started talking about his mom and her death, empathizing with him and reassuring him that if there was anything that he needed to get off his chest, his mother would want him to do the right thing. Right, and they were eight hours into this interrogation when Daniel finally broke.
2: He confessed to all six murders and to the attempted murder of the Miettes. He gave officers an extremely detailed account of every single slaying, providing details that hadn't been released to the public. He stated that he stalked his victims and often waited for them to leave, but they never did. He went on to say that after stealing the safe from the Brock residence, he took it back to his place to break into it before dumping it in a bayou. He claimed that he killed his victims because he didn't want them to identify him, and that he robbed them because he wanted money to buy the things he
3: couldn't afford but wanted. Daniel admitted to gambling away the proceeds of his robberies and said that he knew most of the victims in some way or another. He was angry at Joan Brock's husband, who he felt owed him back pay, and he knew the couple kept his safe in their bedroom. After climbing over their back fence and hiding for several hours in the backyard waiting for them to leave, he broke in, but he was surprised by Joan, who he then stabbed to death. He admitted to stealing the Miets Cadillac and later dumping it on Airline Highway in Ascension Parish. And he explained that his lack of fingerprints at the scene were because he wore gloves, adding that he threw away the old tennis shoes that he wore during the slings. So based on Daniel's
2: confession, robbery did indeed seem to be a motive. And it was estimated he'd stolen as much as $200,000 from his victims and either gambling it or spending it on these big ticket items he paid for with cash. Inside his trailer, investigators seized several items, including a cane-cutting machete smeared with human blood and hair. At the repair shop where he worked, police also found a bent pair of needle-nose pliers, matching the description of the ones Daniel said he used to cut the victim's phone lines.
4: He had a gambling addiction, so he had stole somewhere along the lines of, like,
3: I think a couple hundred thousand from these people. Following his confession, Daniel was arrested for the murder of Joan Brock and returned to Louisiana. But investigators knew it was only a matter of time before more charges were filed. Three days later, investigators also charged Daniel's 35-year-old girlfriend, Cynthia, with two counts of first-degree murder, alleging that she helped by driving Daniel to some of these crimes. So we're looking at Daniel's mugshot, and
2: you can kind of see what Holly was talking about. He's so distinct and angular.
3: So distinct.
2: Yeah. He looks like someone you would cast for a movie as like a weird guy or a villain, like very exaggerated features,
3: blunt bangs, like a bowl cut bang. He has those piercing blue eyes. They're so, his eyes are insane. He, I bet the composite, I haven't seen the composite drawing of him, but he is somebody that you could describe what he looks like. So there's some people that kind of just look like everybody. Yeah. Like they don't have ver- very like me many. me and you. If features. I tried to describe your face, I'd be like, like round-ish. Yeah. Round like, face and
2: hair. Like normal looking. He has a very furrowed, sharp brow, a big nose, tiny lips. And the, the space between his nose and lips looks really long. Yeah right? And like a pointy chin and hollow cheeks. Like I could just, I could draw him after looking at that
3: for a second. Yeah. I mean, he, he definitely looks like a character in some kind of movie.
0: Seeking the truth never gets old.
2: Now that Daniel Blank was in custody, the River Parish's residents could once again sleep easy at night, knowing an arrest had been made. But there were still so many questions. If Daniel was purely just after money, like he intimated in his confession, what was his motivation to kill so brutally?
4: That was another really, really strange thing about it was he didn't have to kill them. They were old people that he could have easily probably overpowered. I feel like if someone broke into my house with a gun and they just wanted to rob me, I would just give them what they wanted. And I don't even know if that was an option for him. That's why I think he was just like, enjoyed it. I mean, how do you like bludgeon six people, especially older people? But the fact that he chose to beat them to death is, I mean, I'm thinking like, you know, he enjoyed it or once he did it the first time, he was like, well, you know, then he did it five more times, maybe more, who knows. I've always thought of this case as the motive was robbery, but I think it it's probably more than that if he did it so many times and killed all these people for, you know, literally just no reason.
3: Three months later, Daniel was charged with the first degree murder of Barbara Bourgeois. Five weeks later, he pleaded not guilty, filing a motion to suppress his confession, now claiming that he was coerced. The court eventually ruled that the confession was admissible because in the end, there was no evidence that Daniel had been threatened or offered any inducement to confess, nor that his rights had been breached. And eventually, prosecutors
2: dropped murder charges against Cynthia in exchange for testifying against Daniel. Daniel had since been charged with the murders of all his other victims, except for the first victim, Victor Rossi, which we'll get to a little bit later and explain that. So for these charges and these murders he's accused of, Daniel would face separate trials for each offense.
3: And almost five months later, Daniel escaped from the state's custody during a court hearing when he asked to go to the bathroom. And it's really giving Ted Bundy vibes because he escaped out of the second floor bathroom window, crawled under the roof, and then jumped on the ground. It's very, very similar. But unlike Ted Bundy, Daniel was recaptured almost immediately. Right, and in August
2: of 99, Daniel went on trial for the murder of Lillian Felipe. As prosecutors couldn't produce any forensic evidence placing Daniel at the crime scene, they relied almost entirely on his confession to prove his guilt. And the Mietz gave a compelling testimony
3: about their attack. Remember, that's a surviving couple, providing corroborating evidence. Daniel's attorney took on a multi-pronged defense, claiming that he was motivated by his gambling addiction, but again arguing that he was coerced into confessing. And the court heard that Daniel had been diagnosed with paranoid schizoaffective disorder and had a brain abnormality resulting in deficits in abstract reasoning. However, a prosecution psychologist testified that Daniel's brain injury had no effect on his brain function. Daniel was found guilty, and
2: despite his family testifying in support of him during the penalty phase, saying they were a close and loving unit, he was sentenced to death by lethal injection. And this was
3: due to aggravating circumstances, including the fact that Lillian was over 65 years old. And then six months later, Daniel was found guilty for the murder of Joan Brock. And it was no surprise when he received his second death sentence.
2: In the meantime, the charge in the case of Barbara Bourgeois was downgraded to secondary murder. But still, Daniel pleaded not guilty. However, just after the trial began, he changed his mind and took a plea deal that pleaded guilty in exchange for a life In prison sentence and taking the death penalty off the table. He would go on to take the same approach when he pleaded guilty to two counts of first degree murder for the
3: deaths of Sam and Luella R. Curry, which landed him two more life sentences. Daniel appealed the convictions that he was able to, determined to exhaust any avenues for appeal that were available to him. And this means that his case has been ongoing through the court system years after the crimes were committed, giving no peace to the families of the victims themselves. Right. And this has prompted people like Holly, who have an interest in this case,
2: to research more and more about it. And for Holly, the more she's learned, the more surreal the whole thing feels. Knowing she's had contact with someone so duplicitous, someone who viciously killed these people and would then come home and put on the dad hat like nothing had happened, feels bizarre because he was killing the summer that Holly was spending time over there. So she saw, you know, this ghost of a man who's got this murderous double life making his kids mac and cheese and stuff. It's bizarre. It's
3: giving BTK. Totally.
4: I was at his house at the time that summer. He had murdered at least two people. It doesn't feel real. I never once looked back and think, oh my God, it could have killed me or anything like that. I mean, but just more like that. And I just casually sat down and ate macaroni and cheese with someone who's capable of, beating an elderly person today with a baseball bat. It's really strange because it feels like it happened to somebody else I'm listening to the podcast and listening to other Japan podcasts. And it's like you hear about these people and these that have done like horrific things and you're just like, these people had family, people who
3: knew them. So if you're wondering whether Daniel had an execution date, it was actually originally scheduled for March 14th of 2016, but only a month before the Louisiana Supreme Court granted a stay of execution. The reason had nothing to do with Daniel's case and everything to do with the supply issues regarding the drugs that were used in state-sanctioned executions.
2: So since around 2010, when the only U.S. manufacturer of one of the drugs used in these lethal drug cocktails used for lethal injections ceased production, many of the states affected turned to importing from Europe instead. And this is a complicated issue. This is all done with the approval from the FDA. But the thing is... Europe doesn't want to give us drugs that help us execute people because you can't get in the EU if you have executions in your country. That's why Turkey is not in it right now. So it's been this whole thing where there's a supply shortage to get the drugs for the cocktails needed to execute people properly. That's why, you know, his
3: execution was delayed. So going back to Daniel's appeals, in May of 2016, he caught a break. And the appeals court ruled that Daniel had ineffective counsel in Lillian's trial. The appeals court found that Daniel's attorney had failed to present mitigating evidence to the jury about Daniel's upbringing, which could have affected the sentencing outcome. And this evidence, including claims that were related to extreme poverty and neglect in the blank household and allegations of incest. So there was even more news in 2017 when it
2: was reported that Daniel asked the court to order independent forensic testing to be conducted on evidence from the crime scenes. Now he was claiming that this testing could exonerate him. The evidence include the baseball bat and a knife from Victor Rossi's residence, fingerprints from several scenes, a broken set of light bulbs from Joan Brock's house, a framed mirror from the R. Curry's home, Sam R. Curry's fingernail scrapings, and cigarette butts found at the Miet residence, as well as a set of pliers from Barbara Bourgeois' home. So you may have assumed that way back during the initial court proceedings that the defense would have conducted their own independent forensic testing on the physical evidence, including the murder weapons,
3: to see if Daniel could be excluded. But you would be wrong, and this is crucial to both Daniel's defense as well as the lack of charges in the murder of Victor Rossi. When law enforcement originally tested the baseball bat in Victor's bathtub, they found two separate male DNA samples that were mixed together, suggesting that both samples were transferred to the weapon at the same time. There was also a third unidentified contributor. So when these samples were compared to Victor
2: and Daniel, one sample matched Victor, but the other excluded Daniel. And when Victor's family learned this in 2017, they started actively campaigning, not only for the evidence to be independently tested, but for Daniel's death sentence for Lillian's murder to be overturned. They now firmly believe he is innocent and are demanding to know why the DNA information was kept from them during the original investigation. How the plot twist.
3: kind of, Oh my gosh. <laughs> So it's also claimed that a lottery ticket found on the floor near Victor's body had a footprint, but we don't know if this was tested against Daniel's shoes or anybody close to Victor. Other alleged improprieties include the failure of the sheriff's department to fingerprint a six-pack of beer in Victor's refrigerator, even though he didn't drink beer.
2: And according to court documents, Victor's family has even gone so far as to question other aspects of the integrity of this investigation like Daniel, they don't believe his attorneys made any effort to investigate what they call irregular circumstances around the investigation of Victor's murder. Daniel claims the coroner's time of death for Victor doesn't match the chronology of events in Daniel's confession. They also claim that there was another suspect in Victor's murder who police failed to properly investigate. And that person was Victor's girlfriend, Sherry. It turns out Sherry's son was dating the sheriff's daughter. And they point to that as a conflict of interest, which caused the sheriff and the detectives to not look at Sherry carefully.
4: So about a year ago, his lawyer was saying that they were testing the DNA, and I don't know if they already tested it or if he is just saying this that it doesn't match him. And so he's saying that he only confessed because he was was coerced or whatever. You know, he's claiming that he didn't do it. One of the victims, and I think it was Victor Rossi. His family doesn't believe it necessarily he did
3: it. I think it's like somebody else did it, like a Greg's girlfriend or something. In November of 2020, Daniel's motion for crime scene evidence to be turned over for forensic testing was denied. But the following year, there was a major update. In September of 2021, the U.S. District Court overturned the decision, ordering law enforcement to turn the evidence over for independent testing. He's trying to get a new trial right now based on DNA evidence. He's still hiding
4: this right now.
2: So at least in Victor Rossi's case, with these new developments, it sounds like things are far from over. So we're not going to say much more at this point, given no charges have been laid for Victor's death, and the outcome of the independent testing remains to be seen. But we asked Holly for her thoughts on Daniel's guilt or innocence overall.
4: I think that it's too much of a coincidence. Circumstantial evidence, I get it, is circumstantial, but I just I have a feeling he did it. He was connected to every single victim. He's the common denominator. It just all adds up to me that he did. And I get it. I do believe in false confessions. I 100% believe them. I'm not saying just because he confessed he did it.
3: Even though Holly has lost contact with Stephanie, she still thinks of her often. I think about her sometimes and what happened to her because after all this happened, she went back to Texas and I don't know who she lived
4: with. I'm assuming her mother. I don't really know. I always wondered whatever happened with her and how her life turned out after all this. The only connection I had to her was that summer, and I know she came other summer, so this was the only one I knew, we knew her, was that summer where she was, you know, visiting.
3: This case has given Holly food for thought when it comes to considering Daniel's motives in relation to what Holly has going on in her own family.
4: It's so interesting to me thinking, like, how, like, the motive in this case was, he was had a gambling addiction, and that hits really close to home to me because I have that in my family. And it is interesting to think about how, especially when you're little, and you think everybody's parents have their stuff together, and then you realize no one does. But from the angle of a little kid, you know, thinking this is like my my friend's parent that did this, that I was at their house, you know, anybody in my opinion was capable of a lot of things. It's crazy to think about like the duplicity. Sometimes you really just don't know what people are capable of and how they can just turn it off and turn it back on.
2: Daniel acted on his envious impulses, choosing victims who had what he didn't, both as a child and in his adult life. And even though they weren't as affluent as numerous media reports would have us believe, they were wealthy and successful in Daniel's eyes, having things he thought that were unattainable for him. Given Daniel both gambled away the proceeds of his crimes and used his victims' money to acquire the things he wanted, His envy of their financial security was obviously a driving factor, and one which saw him perhaps want to savagely punish his victims for having something he never did, and what he felt would always be just out of reach—greed, envy, lust. They don't call them deadly sins for nothing."
3: Well, a huge thank you to Holly for being our First Degree guest for this episode. If you're listening out there and you have a story to tell, please email us, hello at podcast.com. You can follow us on Instagram, join our Facebook group, join our Patreon. We have so much bonus content for you there. And stick around tomorrow because we'll have a brand new episode of Killing Time right in your feed. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close. But not that close.
2: Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for the first degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing and research by Gemma Harris. Sources for this episode are Court Documents, WAFB9, News, The Shreveport Times, The Baton Rouge Advocate, The Daily World, The New York Times, Gonzales Weekly Citizen, NOLA.com, The Associated Press, Los Angeles Times, Find a Grave, River Parishes, L'Observe, Oxygen.com, Alexandra Daily, Town Talk, The Daily Review. Crowley, Post Signal, Daily Advertiser, riverparishes.com, and unitedforalice.org. And as always, our first three guest is always our largest source.